from catching speeders to entertaining readers. There are things in life that matter, and then there are things that don't. In this video, John P. Weiss talks about the things that matter from his unique perspective as a former police chief, now writer, photographer, and artist. He shares his thoughts on what life should be about and why focusing on what truly matters is essential. Welcome to the Wellness Driven Life Show. You're in for a wellness driven ride. Welcome to Candy Apple Advocacy, the podcast for parents who want to advocate for their children's education. I'm Jim Mallard, and I'm here with my wife, Tabby. We've been through the trenches of raising kids in the school system and know how tough it can be, but we also know how essential it is to advocate for your child and their education. That's why we started this podcast, to share our experiences and insights with other parents to help them become more effective advocates for their children. On this podcast, we'll talk about everything from general education, general school advice, the school choices you have available to you, different education styles, individualized education plans, 504s, and all those key terms that you've heard but don't know what they are. We'll talk to experts. We'll also talk to parents and hear their stories. We'll share our stories with you and give you tools you need to be a strong advocate for your child and yourself. Whether you're a new parent, or have been in the game for a while, we invite you to join our community. Let's advocate together. I'm so pleased to introduce our guest to you today. Let me tell you about him. Chief Weiss was dedicated and has dedicated his life to law enforcement and serving the community. He started as a patrol officer in 1990. He worked up the ranks holding various positions, including field training officer, composite sketch artist, detective, sergeant, training manager, impact weapons instructor, peer counselor, hostage negotiator, lieutenant, operations commander, and the list goes on. In 2016, he was awarded Man of the Year by the Scotts Valley Chamber of Commerce. Chief Weiss is highly respected within the community and is known for his dedication to protecting and serving the people of Scotts Valley. Now a retired police chief, John P. Weiss is the author, artist, and educator who writes elegant essays about life lessons, which he illustrates with photography and drawings. His work has been featured in The Guardian, NBC News, Becoming Minimalist, Mr. Feelgood, Austin Art Talk, Good Men Project, Thrive Global, and many other sites. Over 49,000 readers follow his weekly essays on medium.com, including yours truly, and over 12,000 subscribers to Saturday Letters. Please help me welcome John Weiss. 
Well, thank you, April. What an introduction. Oh, my pleasure. It's great to have you on the Wellness Driven Life Show. It's great to be here. So tell us a little bit. I mean, you've been on this incredible journey. You've got this incredible past of many years in law enforcement through all of those various roles and more. I couldn't even read the list, John. <laughs> and um, if if I happen to call you sir throughout this, please forgive me because it's sometime ingrained. And But I want to know a little bit more about your journey from the law enforcement background into this creative aspect. Sure. Well, again, thank you for having me on your show. I think it's great what you're doing as a former law enforcement person yourself, as a deputy, to now be helping people to live a, a wellness-driven life. Uh, my, my story is, is I have always been a creative person. Uh, my father was an administrative law judge. Uh, and he was a very creative guy. Um, he painted on the weekends. Um, and I think he was trying to steer me in my life towards uh, a career in the law. But I didn't really want to be an attorney. I was more interested in, in drawing and, and painting and things like that. Um, but there was a time when a deputy sheriff came to my high school class and spoke about um, his career in law enforcement. And it intrigued me. I thought it was interesting that every day was different for him that he got to help people, that there was some adventure in his career. And so I started to formulate an idea that, hey, maybe I could get into law enforcement. Um, that might be a, a exciting career. And so that's exactly what happened. I ended up uh, graduating, going to college, studying criminal justice um, at the university. And then when I graduated, my father convinced me to go to grad school. Uh, so I spent two more years and, um, and earned a master's degree in administration of justice. And then I started applying at agencies and uh, the Scottsdale Police Department picked me up. But I always had a love of art, creativity, writing. And so throughout my law enforcement career, um, I became known as, as the cartoonist. I was always drawing cartoons of my colleagues. Um, I was always uh, uh, making fun of our exploits. I started to moonlight as a political cartoonist for the uh, local newspapers in my, um, um, in my community. Uh, and that was a lot of fun uh, until the problem happened that I was getting more and more well-known as a cartoonist. And so people were calling the police department to complain if they disagree with the political orientation of my cartoons. Oh, wow. And so uh, the police chief calls me into his office and says, why you got to make up your mind, either be a cop or, uh, you know, be a cartoonist or an artist, but you can't be both because uh, this is a problem. So I, I had to move away from cartooning uh, and I started taking up landscape painting and I put together a website and I started painting and I studied landscape painting in Idaho with a very renowned painter, Scott Christensen. And um, around the same time, I also started blogging and writing more on my website, writing about creativity and art. And uh, so that took on a life of its own. And the original plan was to retire and then um, become a full-time fine artist painter. Uh, but my, my writing started to take off more. I was cross-posting on another website called medium.com and uh, they pay you also based on how well your articles do. And I started to grow a following there. And my writing sort of grew more from just creativity and art to talking about um, life lessons and how to live a better life and personal development, mm -hmm. things like that. Uh, and I would pair my articles with cartoons and, and then more recently with some of my black and white photography. And uh, uh, 
uh, and it just took off. And so that's sort of how this creative life unfolded. Uh, and then I started to um, uh, publish a couple books, and uh, and here we are today. Now I, I retired a few years early from law enforcement to to have a full time life as a writer and an artist. Ah, well, that's a really cool story, and <laughs> I love how you know they told you at one point you can't do both. You can't. Yeah. You can't. You it's, you got to choose one or the other, and and how you must have felt in that moment. But I love how you shifted instead of not doing it entirely, you shifted into, you know, a different scenery, right? Right. right. So in, instead of doing the cartoons, you did landscaping, you started painting and going that direction. What I find really interesting is, is that now that you come into the retirement arena and you, you thought that you were going to pursue and continue to pursue that landscaping, how it right. kind of circled back into the cartooning yeah. and in teaching people life lessons with your writing. And John, that is how I found you a mm -hmm. few years ago on Medium. I really mm -hmm. love the platform. I've learned so much from the writers there. And, you know, I, you were a breath of fresh air because you and I both share a law enforcement background. So there sure. was that familiar, familiar aspect of familiar. Sure. I can't even say it. Familiarity. familiarity. <laughs> oh goodness. Aspect of it. And so, but you didn't really talk about law enforcement. So it wasn't about that. It was just that you came from there. And so you had an understanding of and an awareness of what that world mm -hmm. looks like. Sure. Sure. Well, you know, uh, my law enforcement background does permeate into some of my essays and stories, um, but I, I don't write with an orientation of just a law enforcement audience. Um, I try to write much more broadly. But the, the beauty of a law enforcement career is that it exposes you, I think, to, to the, the full constellation of, of human um, um, frailty, human uh, beauty, everything in between. Um, I mean, as you know, we see everything in law enforcement. We see people at their worst uh, and we see sometimes people at their best. Yeah. And I, I took a lot of lessons from my colleagues that I work with some really remarkable people that I have so much respect for uh, in my agency and in the county where I worked uh, and from the dispatchers to the officers to assist, assistant district attorneys to some politicians that I worked with, people that really were committed to making their community a better place. And so I learned a lot of lessons in my career. I, I was always observing and noticing um, experiences from death cases to suicides to accidents to people on the margins of society that we were trying to help. Um, and so a lot of those life lessons and things I've learned about people, I've tried to take those lessons and then um, expand upon them in my writing and in the stories and in the articles I write about. Um, so sometimes I may write an article that doesn't mention my law enforcement career, but I may have a lesson in there about forgiveness. And, and, and it comes from some of the things I saw in my career or on second chances. Um, so it's amazing how law enforcement can be such an educational career if you open your eyes to it. It can teach you so much about people and, and about how much we're all very much the same and what we want in our, in our lives. And um, my career, I'm very thankful for my career. I think it's made me a much better writer. Absolutely. I think, 
if you allow it, you can, what I appreciated about you is you did take those lessons to a different level. You created wisdom from those experiences and you're now sharing it with the world. And that is what I appreciate about you, John, uh, sir. And (laughs) I, I, can you share what is one of the most challenging situations and lessons that you had while working in that field? You know, I think one of the first things that struck me was how much people lie. You know, I grew up, I was blessed to grow up in a really a wonderful town uh, and I had a wonderful family. My, my father, as I mentioned, was an administrative law judge. He was, he was a, an amateur historian. He was a very moral, ethical man. Um, my mother uh, worked before I was born and then she became a homemaker and raised my sister and I. And she was a loving, wonderful mother that, that showed me so much about humor and laughter and, and living life with, with gusto. And my sister was a health nut, you know, and, a, and an avid reader. And so I just grew up in this wonderful family of support. And I grew up in Los Gatos, California, which now is sort of part of the mecca of the nouveau rich in Silicon Valley. Um, And so I really had a a blessed childhood. You know, I didn't want for much. I got to play tennis on the tennis team. And and so I grew up in a world that was really full of wonderful people that were supportive. And I was not exposed that much to um, the harder sides um, of society. And so going off to college and having a great time in grad school and, and then finally going into law enforcement, um, what I didn't, wasn't expecting was how much people lie. It, it, it blew my mind. I mean, it wasn't just people you would expect to lie. You know, the hell's angel you'll pull over who's lying to you about the drugs he's got on him. But I mean, it was the soccer mom in the Mercedes that would blow through a red light and completely deny, no, I stopped at that light officer. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, and everything in between. I, I guess I saw just really how fragile people were, and it opened my eyes early in my law enforcement career. I mean, I read about these things through my education, but you can't really appreciate it until you're you're in the profession and you see how how people really are. Um, so I guess that was one of the things that surprised me was how how much people lie and they do it so easily, um, either out of embarrassment or to get out of a problem. And it doesn't matter, socioeconomic, racial background, none of that matters. Um, It was across the board. So that was an eye opener to me. Uh, But on the flip side, I also started to see tremendous beauty and inspiration. I would see it sometimes in, you know, a homeless guy I would talk to and I'd hear his story and I'd see how he would help people, even though he didn't have to, and think, wow, you know, I know some people that are really successful that probably wouldn't you know, cross the street to help this lady get her groceries in the car like you just did. And so it that also opened my eyes. So I think in many ways, I had a formal education uh, through uh, private schools and then universities. Then I had a real life education when I got into law enforcement and learned a little bit more about humanity and what people are like, both good and bad. Mm, yes, I can absolutely. <laughs> I can relate, relate to that. Uh, yes, yes, yeah. I can. And so we're going to we're going to drop off and go to our first quick commercial and when we come back I would love for you to share um you know because you have gone through so many difficult situations or you've seen you know the worst of the worst in people and also the beauty in people but when we're talking about the difficulties what um uh, 
what inspiration would you give to someone experiencing difficulties and difficult times when we come back? Our lives were never the same after we learned our 21-year-old daughter, Kristen, was murdered by her ex-boyfriend. It's a parent's worst nightmare. How much did we really know about domestic violence back then? Clearly not enough. Now we know plenty. We know domestic violence, or DV, can happen to anyone. One in three women suffer physical violence at the hands of intimate partners during their lifetimes. One in three. I'm Bill Mitchell, host of the When Dating Hurts podcast. And my interviews with DV counselors, law enforcement, and especially actual DV survivors give the pandemic of domestic violence the attention it deserves. The When Dating Hurts podcast. It's a series of lives being saved. Hi, I'm April Hove, the Managing Director of the Fort Worth, Texas chapter of eWomen Network. I'm so excited that you stopped to watch this video. I've got good news for you. You have just discovered an international network of women entrepreneurs who are committed to helping you achieve, succeed, and prosper. We are on a mission to help 1 million women entrepreneurs each achieve $1 million in annual revenue. Here at eWomen Network, we have a complete success system that supports you every step of the way in building and growing your business. You being here right now is no accident. We're supposed to know about you. We want to meet you to find out how we can help you as well as learn about what you have to offer. With over 500,000 women connecting through 118 chapters across the U.S., Canada, Australia, and the U.K., you are never alone. If this is resonating with you, please go to eWomenNetwork.com slash Fort Worth. Notice, too, my contact information. I invite you to reach out to me and check out our upcoming in-person and online events. I am really looking forward to introducing you to our community. So I want to reroute that question a little bit. What I want to ask is how, what would you say to our audience and how do you find inspiration in difficult times? How do you find inspiration in difficult times? Well, you know, it's going to be different sometimes for different people. Um, We all have different interests and different needs. So sometimes it's hard to give a one fit all answer, but I can think of a couple of things. Um, For me, I think one of them, it starts with family. Um, family is like, it's like a refuge in your life. Um, if, you have, if you have a healthy family, if you have a good family, um, or it could be your friends too, um, if, if you're not with anyone or don't have any, any immediate family. But I think that's the first thing is having a, um, a refuge in your family and friends. Um, they are truly just gifts in life. And sometimes it's easy for us when we are struggling with our careers or with a transition, sometimes we're, we forget that that is such a huge resource. Um, you know, um, my son and I, we go out to dinner together uh, on weekends when my wife is working. My wife is a hospice nurse, and so she works on, on weekends a couple of days a week, uh, 12 hour shifts. So it's just my son and I. And uh, we go out to dinner together, and um, 
you know, I know I've got him for another year. Uh, well, not even a year. I got him till next, uh, well, about a year. And then he graduates and he'll be off uh, uh, starting his life uh, in the Air Force um, as a second lieutenant. So I'm cherishing these these evenings with him on the weekends where we have dinner together because when I think about things that I want to change in my life or improve, um, this time I spend with him is so inspirational. Um, um, he talks about his life and what he's working on and he I bounce ideas off him and he gives me great insights. He's just a remarkable young man. So I would say to you know, your listeners that uh, one of the first resources um, during difficult times um, is your family uh, and your friends. Um, they're precious and don't forget them and invest in them and, and let them help you. Um, beyond that, I would say that uh, for me, books and literature are a great resource because when we read we remind ourselves that there are other people that came before us who have gone through tremendous struggles. I think it's easy for us to forget that when we get so wrapped up in our own lives and whether we're going through a financial problem or we're trying to uh, get over an addiction or a difficult relationship, or we feel bad about ourselves because we haven't lost the weight and we wanna be a different person in our mind than we currently are. It's so easy to get down on ourselves and feel bad about ourselves. And, I find sometimes turning to literature and books is a great resource. Now you can do that online. You can try to do that with some movies, but I'm often disappointed. I, I don't watch television that much anymore because so much of that I find is superficial. There's a few gems here and there and some great movies, but a lot of times I can't find it. And then when you go online, there's so much superficial stuff that I think sometimes makes people feel bad. You know, it's uh, it, it, and they look at these these images on you know YouTube or on Instagram of people running around the beaches that live in the life the laptop lifestyle and they and they feel bad that's not them or what are they doing wrong or how come they don't look like that person and so I I've just found that books written by people that have been edited that have great stories can inspire you and like for instance uh, Victor Frankel wrote a book many many years ago uh, mm -hmm. Man's Search for Meaning here's a man who you know survived the Holocaust lost his entire family. Um, talk about a man who could easily have slipped into despair and given up, who suffered tremendously. And yet, you know, he survived it. He lived on and he wrote this beautiful book about how it doesn't matter what happens to you in the world. All that matters is how you respond to it. You have the ultimate decision to make on how you want to respond to whatever the struggle is. It's up to you to decide that. So that book is a great um, reminder for people that are going through their own struggles that you get to decide how you want to respond to these things. If you're unhappy about yourself, okay, let's start with small steps. How can you change that? Um, you don't like your career? Okay, let's start with small steps. How, how, how do I want to respond to that? Do I want to complain forever about it and feel down and depressed and sit on the couch and watch NCIS reruns? Or do I want to start getting online and looking for uh, different jobs, new skills? So I just think that you know your family, literature, and then the last thing would be um, your passions. Um, when we're dealing with difficult times, if you can set aside time, you know, take take the hours you spend on YouTube, and then go follow your passion instead. Whether it's you know if you're a runner, whether you're a painter, whether you're in music, you can always find time photography to dive into your passions a little bit, and that always has exponential returns for me when I do it. When I get down about something or get frustrated that I haven't reached a goal. If I take time out of my day to pursue some of my passions, it, sometimes it can feel like a guilty pleasure too. Like, oh, I'm wasting time. I should be working on this. I shouldn't be out here taking you know, street photography or, or drawing cartoons. But when I do that, it just resets me. 
it just gives me a chance to settle into myself and get lost in my passion. And it recharges me a little bit. So mm -hmm. family, friends, you know, great books and literature that you can escape into and learn about other people's lives and inspiration. And then diving into your passions would be my three pieces of advice. Awesome. Well, brilliant saying the, the writing aspect as a writer, because everyone should be going to your, your writing and reading them because they are inspirational. And you and I both know that NCIS is not real and <laughs> does not depict the reality of what uh, a law enforcement career is or with a happy. I don't mean to pick it. on them. I mean, I'm sure, you know, it's, it's, I'll pick on them with all, you. <laughs> we all have our TV shows that are silly and we, you know, it's, we're escaping reality. So there's nothing wrong with, sometimes you need to escape into a TV show. So I don't want to, you know, say that that's a terrible thing. I just think that uh, if you want to really feed your soul, um, yeah. there's some great places to do that besides just, uh, you know, old TV shows and, and news programs and all that stuff. Well, I love that, you know, really I, it com the sense of community or first one family honing in on, you know, the people that we have in our life that we surround ourselves with, they, you know, we're all here to support each other. And I am a huge yeah. advocate for community. And, you know, if you don't have a lot of people in your life, make that happen. Because, Absolutely. you know, we, we are here for each other, you know, Absolutely. people, um, People happen to die of loneliness, believe it or not. It is a thing. Yep. And yeah, so, it's a killer. Yeah, it is. It's a killer. That sense of community is huge. And so, yes, and then informing yourself. I love Viktor Frankl's work. It's an inspiration for anyone on this planet. So it's a, I, I think it should be a must read. And, yeah. and yeah, so thank you so much. I, you know, I had a comment come through, John, and I want to, um, I've mm -hmm. had a few, so I also want to open it up to our viewers. If you have any questions, please put them in the chat and we'll answer, but I'm going to bring uh, one or two of them in. Um, Manly says, who influenced you as an artist, especially considering cartoons? <laughs> So the cartoons started very early in life. Um, I think I was in grade school and I, I just started noticing in newspapers um, cartoons. And it wasn't so much comic strip cartoons, it was editorial cartoons. I love the graphic square cartoon. And I didn't understand the politics of a lot of these cartoons when I was younger. I, I didn't read much about politics or understand that, but I love the drawings. And some of the early influences for me were Jeff McNelly, who was a three-time Pulitzer Prize-winning editorial cartoonist. And people who, who look at my, uh, my drawings will probably see that influence. I do a lot of cross-hatching and detail. I like my cartoons to have weight to them, which means that mm. there's a lot of lines in them and they're really fleshed out. Um, so even though I'm a bit of a minimalist in my personal life, how I want to live my life, I don't like a lot of clutter and things like that. When it comes to um, cartoons, I'm a maximalist. I really like to put a lot of detail into my characters. Um, another influence was Pat Olipant, who is another um, political cartoonist. Uh, he's still alive, I believe, but he's retired now. Jeff McNally sadly passed away of lymphoma years ago. Um, uh, Jim Borgman is another cartoonist from Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, who, uh, yeah, I see a comment there. I still don't understand politics. Yeah, you and me both, Manly. I don't understand politics either. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's 
It's probably why I'm not doing political cartoons anymore. But um, but Jim Borgman is another one who I really admired. I actually wrote to him, and he he corresponded with me a little bit when I was a political cartoonist, and gave me some uh, some great advice. He now is the uh, the artist for the very successful comic strip Zits uh, that's still mm. in a lot of newspapers. Um, so. Those were a few of the uh, cartoonists that inspired me. There, there were many more. I mean, George Harriman, who drew a comic strip called Crazy Cat many, many years ago. Um, in fact, Crazy Cat wasn't even in the newspapers when I was a kid. It was it predated me, but I loved his style. Um, so those are some of the cartoonists that, uh, that, that inspired me uh, growing up. You know, one of them that come came to mind for me, John, was, uh, is it Charles Schultz? Charles he Schultz, the, Peanuts, yeah. Right, so he had all of this experience influence from world war two. Yes. And so, you know, when you consider more of this real traumatizing sort of life and experiences and, you know, law enforcement has a lot of that aspect too. I mean, you yes. see so many horrific things and, and things where, in a sense, you get this sense of humor that most people don't understand because it's one way to be able to cope with it. Yes. Yes, and, absolutely. Yeah. I think you're right. I, I mean, there's the gallows humor that you probably know, too, from law enforcement. Cops sometimes privately amongst themselves can have the, you know, the worst sense of humor. They can joke about things. that. Yeah. But it's a pressure valve release. You know, it's a way to let off steam uh, uh, for the terrible things that we see. And, and, you know, I, I think that um, uh, my, my mom used to tell me that I was a sensitive soul as a little boy. I was very sensitive. I'd feel things very deeply. Uh, and mm. she was right. And, and, you know, law enforcement, probably I had so many people that said to me, I can't believe you're in law enforcement. You seem like you should have been a professor or a priest or something like that. Um, and uh, so I, I learned how to cope in law enforcement. I learned how to steel myself and to deal with the ugly things and the sadness and the tragedies. But I don't think that I came out of it entirely unscathed. I think that you, you learn how to carry it. And so what's happened with me is I've noticed over the years, particularly since I retired and moved into writing, that um, I, the things I felt deeply, they're, they're still in me and they come out in my writing. Uh, there's times when I write and I, mm -hmm. I, I move myself with my writing. I stop and I have to take a break because I'm, I'm almost moved to tears thinking about yeah. something that, that, that affected me. That, that I, now I want to use as, as fuel to inform my writing to hopefully mm. um, reach other people. Because I think the best writing is when you can move other people, if it can be poignant, if it can inspire people and move them and create the feelings in them that, John, that, dr that drives home a message. What an incredible way to put that. I, I love that. And I'm going to go back on that because I think, uh, I think for anybody and any writer, I, I love how you describe that, that when you are moved to tears where it's such an emotional response based on the memories that you've had and that you use that as fuel right. to, to push you further. And it doesn't just let you, you don't, you don't let it stop you. And I think a right. lot of people there, you know, when they're moved that deeply, they, they just stop and they're right. not able to move forward. So I love that you said that, that you use it as fuel to, to go forward and move on and to inspire others. And um, I have a, a, 
a bunch of comments flooding in. So I'm just going to go ahead and utilize this. I'm going to bring a couple in because when we're on the topic of writing, um, we have Charlie said, John, thanks for digesting so much literature and condensing it eloquently, which you absolutely do. Thanks, and then Charlie. I had another one. Bill says, if you could only suggest three pieces of literature to read, what would they be? Oh my gosh, that's so impossible. I mean, how do you how do you condense down books? You know, and well, Victor Frankel is one. So yeah, I, I, I mentioned Victor Frankel. So, so let let me just, let me share a confession too with maybe your listeners and readers too. Is that I'm not a well-read man. Um, I think it may surprise a lot of people, but I came to books late in life. Uh, I was drawing cartoons and lost in my little world of drawing cartoons, and uh, so for me. Um, reading and books is something that I didn't really turn on to, to until probably college. Uh, and even in college, you know, I am, I am underread in all the classics. I'm finding myself trying to catch up um, with uh, reading the books that people say you should read. You know, I hear, you know, Chekhov and Dostoevsky and, and all these just di different uh, authors and from the past and the, uh, and sometimes they're hard to tackle. Uh, I read some of these things and, and they're confusing. Um, I think when I was in college, I tended to read more um, contemporary books. Um, so it's very hard for me to, to, to condense down when it's like three pieces of literature to read. They're all over the board. I, I did like Hemingway. I love the old man you know, in the sea. Um, There's something about that story and how it relates to our lives and and the struggles and sometimes we can we can try to succeed just like he did catching his his big fish and and then and then the sharks come anyway in life don't they mm. the sharks come in and and they can take away something that we thought we were going to um, we were going to celebrate and then what do we do we have to pick ourselves up again and and sometimes we need people to help us just like um, um, the little boy helps him in the in the story. Um, there's a book I read not long ago um, that's not a classic like Hemingway, but um, it's David Brooks, who is a columnist uh, who's been around for a number of years. And he wrote a book called, I think it's called The Second Mountain. Um, and what that book was about, and I don't think it's a literature classic, but it's definitely a book that I got a lot out of. Um, it's basically a book that recommends that you form of life that's other-centric instead of self-centric. And what David was talking about there is that, you know, early, and I've written about this, I think, in a couple of my essays, but early in um, life, we tend to focus on ourselves. But it's natural. We all, we all do that. We're focusing on how to, how to live a better life, how to be more successful, how to look good. Uh, so we're very sort of egocentric. Uh, and, and it's very common for most of us to, to have that. And we climb up the ladder in our lives and we try to reach career success and we get married perhaps, and maybe we have children um, and do many of the things that people look to as a conventional successful life. And we finally get there. We reach maybe the, the top of our career and we look around and we're not happy. And we think, well, now what? And that's because we've reached the top of the first mountain in our lives. Now we got to climb down that first mountain and go through the valley and start looking for the second mountain. And what David Brooks talks about in his book, The Second Mountain, is building a life that is other-centric. That's stop, stop focusing so much on yourself and focus on something bigger than yourself. Mm -hmm. And this happens usually later in life. I think it's rare it happens early in life. It can happen earlier in life. 
that people tend to later in life dive into that second mountain, which is trying to make the world a better place, trying to help people. Um, you know, when I, when I joined the Rotary Club in the police department uh, as, as a young lieutenant, I did it entirely for egocentric reasons. Uh, I was told that it would help my career and it moved me along and I'd know more people in the community. And I'm embarrassed to admit that I didn't join Rotary back then because I wanted to, you know, um, uh, get involved in all their projects and, and help people. But a weird thing happened. I'm in the club and I met some folks that were older than me. A few were retired, some were not. And there was a few like me that were there maybe to move along their career. But I discovered these weekend projects. We were going out and, and helping elderly couples uh, put railing in their houses so they wouldn't fall down. And they were in tears thanking us for these projects. And I just, something opened up in me and I realized that, wow, when you help other people, it just, um, it just feeds your soul. You feel, you feel so good that you're helping them. And it's not, an, it's not a self-centric thing. You're helping somebody else, but it, it comes back on you. So um, David Brooks, the second mountain, uh, Victor Frankl's uh, Man's Search for Meaning and, and uh, Hemingway's uh, Old Man in the Sea stand out to me. I've got a, an ocean of books behind me here. Uh, most of them are, are John, wait a minute. You just now. said you were not a reading man. No, no, no. I said I, I, I was not a well-read oh, man. Well-read man. Okay. But I'm referring more to um, the classics. I'm trying to play catch-up now in my life. I've got a lot of contemporary books and everything from Christopher Hitchens to an amazing story about Carthusian monks that just blew my mind about these young men that became monks uh, in the most austere Catholic tradition ever, the Carthusians. And um, they live in cells and, and don't talk to one another. And who would do that? And, and, and so that book blew me away. But I didn't read a lot of the classics. You know, I talked to people who are English literature um, um, experts, and I feel inadequate because... I want to know what they've read and I want to be, so that's one of my goals at this stage in my life. Unfortunately, I think I'm young enough that I could do that is, is to start turning more and more to um, some of these classics and, uh, and, and really, you know, I mean, some of them we read in high school, but I, you know, the catcher in the rye and all these different books. And I kind of remember them, but I wasn't focused and I didn't, I wasn't ready to receive their wisdom. And now I feel ready and I'm anxious to. So. I think that's wonderful. And I wrote down, um, some of those because I haven't read the second mountain. So that is definitely yeah. something that I wrote down for me. And yeah. I love that, you know, we, we definitely get inspired from other people's works and that's oh, how yeah. we, we find relation and inspiration. And that is the purpose of the wellness driven life show. So we're going right. to go to another commercial. And when we come back, I'm going to jump into some more of these comments, John, because sure. they are flooding in. So, okay, sounds good. Tuned. With key ingredients supported by over 80 clinical trials, the exclusive formulation of the Bella Grace Collagen Elixir is changing lives everywhere. Ingesting collagen peptides alone is not very helpful. This is where most collagen products fall short and where Bella Grace changes everything unlike other collagen products the bella grace collagen elixir controls the gene switches which activate collagen creation and disables the enzymes that break down the matrix bella grace collagen elixir contains verisol 
the world's best and most clinically studied form of collagen. These elite collagen peptides influence the skin's collagen metabolism directly from the inside. Nature's most powerful antioxidant. 6,000 times more potent than vitamin C, Astoreal Astaxanthin prevents the activation of gene switches that drive inflammation and activates the gene switch responsible for cellular repair and longevity, forming bridges across cell membranes, protecting them from free radical attack. Amazonian Cat's Claw suppresses the enzymes that degrade collagen and our skin matrix caused by oxidants and inflammation. It simply turns the switch off. The world's most studied collagen, plus activating the genes that make collagen, plus switching off the genes that break down collagen, has resulted in something the world has never experienced. The Bella Grace Collagen Elixir. Start your 30-day Bella Grace Challenge today. Ever heard of Stoicism? Chances are, if you have, you've heard of Stoicism with a lowercase s and not Stoicism with an uppercase s. Lone wolves, no emotions, antisocial behavior, cold, indifference, all that is Stoicism with a lowercase s. Stoicism with an uppercase s is the ancient Greek philosophy and virtue ethics framework that centers on service to the cosmopolis, to include your family, friends, community, and planet, and the development of a good moral character. My name is Tanner Campbell, and I'm the host of Practical Stoicism, a three times a week podcast teaching Stoic principles and concepts to anyone interested through the exploration of texts and deep dives into various moral topics. You can find Practical Stoicism where you're already listening to podcasts by searching for Practical Stoicism or by going to stoicismpod.com. I invite you to give it a listen today. You just might like it. So I want to jump into some of these comments, John. And so we've got a few. Um, I just want to hone in on this. Mary says, as a student of philosophy and passionate reader, just want to say how much I love your writing. I enjoy learning from you and being inspired by your art. What a compliment. Wow. Thank you, Mary. That's really, really wonderful. I appreciate that. That's one of the things that's the joy of writing is that uh, you get to share, you know, your thoughts and your inspirations with people. But one of the best parts is I get these amazing readers that, that, comment on my articles and they share their insights. They recommend books. They, they tell me their life stories. I've learned so much from uh, the folks that are kind enough to read my work. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I just really appreciate them. And then uh, Manly says, give it enough time in the books you've read may become classics. Yeah, that's so true. That's so true. Some, some of the books that have moved me, you know, that are, are not necessarily well-known books, but they just, uh, um, they, they touch you in, in a way. There's an author named Terry Kay that I read years ago, and he wrote this book called To Dance with the White Dog. And it's this lovely little story about a man who lost his wife, and now he has to go to a uh, high school reunion. 
and he's getting ready to go to this reunion. And he, he ends up, I think if I recall, not going, he, he, he visits his old high school, you know, and he, and he thinks about the past. And while all this is happening at his house, there's this white dog that keeps coming to see him, you know, and, and the dog just visits. He doesn't, and the dog sometimes jumps up on her hind legs and he holds the dog's paws and they walk around and sort of dance together. Um, and, and it's just such a sweet story. Uh, Terry Kay was a, a Southern writer, as I recall, and I'm going to give a spoiler. This is going to be a spoiler of what happens with this novel. But, um, uh, at the end of this novel, um, you know, he, he, uh, he tells his family about this white dog and they don't believe him. He's, yeah, dad, you're seeing things. There's no white dog, you know, and he's, no, the dog comes ever since mom died and, you know, and, and, and she dances with me and she's this wonderful dog and you, know, you got to meet her. Um, and then eventually, you know, um, he passes away and the family come to visit his, um, his grave site where the dirt is still fresh on the dirt and there's paw prints on the, um, on the dirt. And I think what Terry Kay was alluding to that it, in some way is his wife had come back to him as this dog and reassured him and danced with him. It was a simple story, but things like that, they stay with me. Um, and, and are, are moving. And, uh, so that's the, that's the beautiful thing about books is it, it just reminds you, everybody goes through loss. Uh, everybody goes through uncertainty and, and, and the world is a miraculous place. You never know what might happen. Maybe a white dog will show up one day to, you know, to reassure you when you're, when you're down. <laughs> mm. oh, I love that. And, you know, on the topic of compassion, I have, I have a few people that are, are asking about that sp specific topic. So I'm going to bring in a few of those. And Charlie says, what are the limits of compassion? Should I give to every panhandler to any? Yeah, I know it's hard, isn't it? I mean, we want to help people, but then um, how do you do that um, in a way that's meaningful and may not harm them. And also what are the limits to what you can give, right? You have to take care of yourself too. Um, it's sort of like that old thing in the airplane, you know, when the, when the oxygen tank comes down, or the oxygen mask, you got to put yours on first so you can go on and help, you know, yeah. your family and people around you. So, you know, here's how my dad solved that problem with, with panhandlers. Because where I live here in Las Vegas, um, I see some of these poor folks, you know, out there on the margins of society struggling and, and, it's so easy to look past them. And then other times you want to help them, but you know, if you give them money, they may, they may use it for alcohol or drugs or something else. So what do you do? My dad's solution, he used to work in the city of San Francisco and he used to walk past um, uh, these folks that were struggling all the time. And what he would do is he donated um, quite um, generously to St. Francis. I think it was St. Francis or St. Anthony's kitchen. It was one of the two. Um, and it was a, uh, a free kitchen uh, right there in the city, downtown, that they served meals throughout the day. And so anyone who was hungry could go there and get a meal. And he would always stop and these guys would ask for money and say, hey, I'm sorry, I don't have any money on me. But um, if you want to go down, you get, he gave him the address. You can go to St. Francis and they give you a meal. You can get something to eat. Um, and so, you know, that's one way um, to try to help folks um, without maybe harming them. But sometimes we can do heroic things. And I always talk, I, my dad is just an endless font of stories um, because he's such a remarkable man. My father watched a man, I've written about this, um, who was an Italian immigrant who was homeless 
in downtown Los Gatos. He actually lived in the woods in Los Gatos in the hills. He used to make acorn coffee for himself. He was a, a master wood sculptor. He had no family. Uh, and he lived in the woods in a little little shack he built for himself. Well, he was in downtown Los Gatos one day and he got hit by a car. And my dad witnessed this. And he was knocked, I think, a good mm. point uh, and he was injured. Uh, and my dad, you know, he was an attorney. He went ahead and uh, he he basically um, came to his rescue. He he rode with him in, in the ambulance to the hospital. He learned more about this man. The man's name was Theodore Strollo or Ted Strollo. Um, and so my dad basically uh, helped to get him benefits. Uh, he brought him back after he got out of the hospital to my parents' house where my mother and my dad nursed him back to health for about a month. Um, I got to know Ted Strollo. Uh, and then my dad got him an apartment in downtown Los Gatos um, and basically befriended him and became his benefactor. And for the rest of Ted Strollo's life, uh, every Christmas, uh, halfway through the day, my dad and I would drive down to Ted Strollo's apartment. My dad would bring him uh, packages of Stella Dora cookies that Ted Strollo loved and wool socks. And we'd visit with him for about an hour. And Ted would tell us stories of the old country and his Italian accent. And he used to listen to the radio and he was just an interesting character. Um, and he, he, Ted Strollo had, had carved this beautiful wooden structure. It was about five feet tall and he called it the mystery tree of life. And he gave it to my father as a gift. It was beautiful. It had wooden balls carved in the middle of it that he had to carve out and they were in the middle. Just unbelievable artistry. And when Ted Strollo died, my father um, secured him a burial plot, I think in Saratoga. And eventually my father, I think, donated the, um, the Mystery Tree of Life to an Italian um, um, arts organization. But imagine the lesson that my dad gave me as a young boy of, of helping this, this man that was hit by a car. Now, look, we can't, all of us can't just bring a homeless individual home. Some of these folks are struggling with alcohol issues or, or mental health issues. Mm -hmm. um, Ted Strollo didn't have those issues. He was just, he was just poor and trying to live on his own and, and, and struggling. And, and that was a time where my dad could help him. But I think we, we all have opportunities like that to be charitable, um, whether it's to give a person a meal or to donate to an organization, a professional organization that can help folk people. So uh, probably a long-winded answer, but that's one way you can, can help folks like that. And, uh, and also not use yourself up. I mean, you can't give away all your money. You need to survive too. So um, you give what you can and you do what you can. Sometimes it's nothing more than opening the door or just smiling and saying hello to a person who's struggling to recognize their humanity. Mm, I think that's an incredible answer, you know, and recognizing their humanity and just saying, I meet you, I see you. Right. And um, so I loved your answers and I hope that that helped the audience. And I want to bring in um, another one. This gentleman says, I would love to hear how you balance your cartoon creating, photography, and writing. It seems like a lot, but you've figured out how to do all three very well. So now we're kind of transitioning into what is like a balanced life look like for you? Yeah, and it's, and it's going to vary for everybody, isn't it? Thanks for the question, Ken. Um, so I, I, you know, my balancing act has changed over the years. When I first started writing online, I was doing a lot of cartooning. Um, and I pretty much illustrated all of my essays with cartoons. It was very time consuming, Ken. Um, in fact, my output of writing was slowed a bit because I have to illustrate all those articles. 
Um, now it paid off. It was popular and I gained a lot of followers. Uh, and then in recent years, as I've sort of embraced um, photography and, and street photography somewhat, I've been doing a little more of, of that and not as much cartooning. Uh, and so some of the folks that were following me that enjoyed the cartoons are probably disappointed or not seeing as much of them. Um, part of that was I was worried that the cartoons maybe were 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 taking a, in a weird way were taken away from the writing that people were it were a gimmick or a novelty that got people to read the article and I wanted people to read the article for the content of the article and not just for the cartoons. But to answer your question, I call it creative juggling. Um, I try to balance my life around my passions and I tend to work when I have the most energy. And then for for me, I tend to read earlier in the day. Uh, feed my mind and go out and walk with my dogs and exercise. And then in the later mm -hmm. part of the day and in the evening tends to be where my creative energy comes from the most. Um, I know there's a million people out there writing about morning plans and how important it is to start your day with doing what you're good at. But I'm the opposite. I, I still get up fairly re decent hour, but um, I tend to find that you have to leverage your creativity with your energy. And that can be hard when you're working. When I was the police chief, uh, what I used to do is use my um, evenings and weekends to do writing and artwork. Um, what I do now is when I go out, I try to remember to bring my camera whenever I go anywhere. I try Again, I call this creative juggling with my time where um, if I'm going out to dinner with my son, I, I throw my little Fujifilm X-Pro3 rangefinder on my shoulder and take it with me. Because sometimes I'm walking out of the restaurant, I see something or I'm downtown running errands and I see something and I start taking some pictures. Whenever I travel, I bring it with me. And I, I carry a very small kit camera. It's a small little rangefinder, so it's easy to carry and inconspicuous. Um, so that's one way is always have the tools of your creativity around you. If you're a writer, have that notebook with you in your back pocket or in your car. I always have books in my car. So if I get stuck somewhere at a doctor appointment or waiting for someone, I can read at the airport while I'm waiting to pick up a friend. Um, so the camera goes with me everywhere. My little notebooks go with me everywhere. I also take notes on my iPhone. Um, so when I'm, I'm always writing, I'm always writing. I, I hear snippets of conversations in, you know, a Starbucks or a coffee shop and I'm writing it down. Um, I see an interesting person crossing the street, uh, you know, and, and I, I take a few pictures and, and I look for things that are going to inspire me. Um, but everyone's, it's hard to answer that question because everyone's schedules are different. And, it, and sometimes you're in a season of life where you're just really busy. You're taking your grades and your kids and you're going to work. And there's a narrow window there to feed your, your passions. And then what you have to do is make choices. You got to learn to say no to people. Otherwise, they'll spend your mm. time for you. Uh, I had to learn that. I didn't like disappointing yeah. people, but I learned that I got to say no. Uh, you know, and I did. I learned to say no. I, I quit golf because I realized I wasn't that good at it. And it was taking up so much time on a weekend that I could be writing or painting. Um, so, you know, I'm not doing as much painting right now. I like to get back to that, but, and I'm not doing as much cartooning. Although I'd like to do a little more of that, doing a lot more photography and writing right now, because the writing has become kind of my, my focus. Um, but I would say, listen to your energy, listen to your heart and, um, and put the energy into that and say no to people and things that waste your time, whether it's too much TV or too much social media. And you can get a lot more time out of your day than you realize. Ah, John, that's awesome feedback for our audience. You know, even regardless, I, I know that people have to put their buckets into the things that apply to their own lives. But really what you're saying is you, you, whatever you do, it's like have dog will travel, you know, like <laughs> right. be a photographer, have camera as you travel, you know, like, you know, carry your pen and notebook and as you move through your day and through life, 
you're you're using those tools yeah, that are your yeah. passion. And so that's that's great feedback. Um, I have a lot of people asking about your photography. So they want to know, what are you doing now with your photography? And, and you answered a lot of that by, you know, yeah. carrying the camera with you and everything. But um, I know that you're you're doing a little bit more with that. Where right. can people find that work? Is it through that main website? And let me bring that back in. And so our audience knows where to reach you. Sure. Yeah. So the photography is, is, is a new um, creative passion of mine. And I think some of it was born out of its immediacy. You know, to draw a cartoon or a painting takes time. And I, and I love doing it. Um, but I discovered street photography. I see you got a question here from Teresa. I discovered street photography a couple of years ago. Uh, there's a fellow named Sean D'Souza who has an amazing website called psychotactics.com and he helps businesses uh, for their branding and, 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 um, and growing their businesses. But he also is a wonderful photographer. Um, and he, I, he met me, or I met him years ago. We started a WhatsApp conversation. We've never met in person, but I feel like I know the guy. I have so much respect for him. He's just such a creative person. Um, and Sean D'Souza, he also has a website with his photography called theothersheandesouza.com. Say that three times fast, but um, <laughs> but Sean inspired me with photography as well. Uh, uh, he shared his his photography. He's he's a black and white aficionado like me. I don't know why I became so enamored with black and white or monochromatic photography. Maybe it's the minimalist in me. But as I got older, I started simplifying my life. I started letting mm. go of clutter. Uh, I simplified how I dress. Um, I, I I try to write more spare. I try to cut out everything that's superfluous and unnecessary. And so for me, I love color, but there's something dramatic, almost theatrical about black and white photography. I love the contrast. I love the elegance of it. Uh, I love the simplicity. And street photography is very um, consistent with that documentary and uh, street photography of going out and capturing people in real life. Now there's people on YouTube and all that that are going out and introducing themselves to people and saying, hi, I'm a street photographer. I want to take your picture. And that's one form of photography, but that's not candid street photography. That is asking someone to do street portraiture, which is different. And that mm -hmm. can be a lot of fun to do. It's much more difficult to do candid street photography where you're capturing moments um, in real life where people, you know, just go about their lives and you're capturing those moments and they can be beautiful moments or sad moments or, or just, interesting moments, or maybe it's the light and the people moving through a, a scene that captures you. Um, I know the photo when I see it, when I get, when I get it, I like the way it looks. I like, I like, I like a little bit of vignetting. Um, so for me, I really enjoy going out and seeing what I can capture with street photography. I'd say I'm still new at it. I have a tremendous amount to learn, but I use my photography in my writing. What I love to do sometimes is take photographs of people or scenes and then make up stories around them. And I've done that with a few things that people have probably read. I, um, I have a picture of a guy in, in Scotland who has this huge um, owl on his arm. And I made up a whole story about that. It has nothing to do with Scotland or the guy with the owl, but it was a great jumping off point to use. So I like to use my street photography sometimes for stories. And it doesn't have to be about that, that person or that scene. Um, and candid street photography is challenging because 
you have to find this balancing act between being very natural and walking around and taking pictures and not being creepy. I mean, when I was in car, I was stuck in Carmel last month. Uh, I had given a eulogy for a friend's mother and I couldn't come home because of the bad weather. I couldn't get back to, to Southern Nevada. So I ended up in Carmel, California, where I um, spent some time doing street photography. And um, I didn't share this in my, my writing, but I was down near a, co a coffee shop one day near uh, or uh, just outside of Carmel. And there was a woman sitting outside with her dog and there was a guy inside and in the window and he was praying and it was an amazing photograph and I'm in my car trying to take a picture of this you know from a distance and I get out of the car to go into the coffee shop and this woman and, this, and, and her passenger drive up in a car and they stop and they have a little dog and they look at me and they said excuse me but what are you doing what are, you're kind of creepy why, why are you out or taking pictures who are you taking pictures of and they were you're kind of freaked out you know, and I said, oh, my gosh, no, I said, I, I do street photography. I just I like to take candid pictures of people. My name's John Weiss. I have a website. I can give you the name of the website. And, mm -hmm. But, you know, because I was in my car, I look more like a private eye or something than I did. So street photography is challenging to do it in a way that doesn't turn people off is hard. But, boy, it's so much fun when you capture beautiful moments or inspiring scenes. And uh, I really enjoy it. And it's a great way to feed my creativity from my writing. And uh, that's why I do it. Ah, well, thank you for sharing. And I think, um, like you said, when you're you're marrying the two, uh, the photography and the story writing, that's really yeah. blending on your skill. And I like that aspect. Right. And, in, you know, um, what I wanted to add to the black and white is that is balance of itself, you know, the black yeah. and the white, and it's yeah. these, you know, it's the yin and the yang. And then we had another comment from one of our viewers. He said, black and white imagery is an abstract we see in color. So um, we're going to go to our last commercial. And John, if you have a little bit more time today, I'd, I'd love to um, ask that we have a guest from Berlin, Germany, and I really love the question that she okay. has. Sure. And so when we come back, we're going to dive into that for a minute and Sounds good. stay tuned. Hello, everyone. I am Kim Jacobs, the host of The Kim Jacobs Show, and you all know who's right here with me, Dr. Les Brown. How are you, Dr. Brown? I'm blessed and highly favored. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the time you want to give yourself a competitive edge. If you got a message, you have some knowledge or experience, a story, or if you want to do something adventurous and exciting with your life that can increase your credibility, expose you to millions of people, I'm encouraging you to have your own talk show. I used to have a talk show. That one talk show catapulted me to another level. Now there are more people watching the internet, as you are aware, than television. Yes. Come on, somebody. That's right. Dr. Kim Jacobs, she trained people on how to have their own talk show. She will train you how to do that. And now with me working, partnering with her, now you have the combination of an audience, expansive audience. We have over 4 million people in all of our platforms and the coaching you need to grow your business, to grow your multi-level marketing organization, to draw more attention to yourself in this noisy economy. Go ahead, Kim. 
So in the training that I do, Les, I actually do a six-week training. It's one hour per week. And each week I meet with the individuals one-on-one. We go through and we talk about all of the things that's necessary for a show to become a reality. We go from how to actually identify your focus area, what's going to be your ideal customer that's going to be tuning in. We'll talk about how to get guests, how to get sponsorship, how to go about getting your lighting, your branding, and your banners, and everything that you need to know. And guess what, Les? They right. own their own content at the end of the day. And that's exciting. Now, if you're ready to, to, to create a shift in your business and in your life and increase your cash flow, I want you to go to KimJacobsConsulting.com. It's right there on the screen. KimJacobsConsulting.com. You know, people say opportunity knocks on every door. Right. No. Opportunity stands by silently waiting for you to recognize it. So I want you to recognize that this is a time for you. This is an incredible time to have your own talk show. It establishes a level of credibility. Yes. And by being exposed to people on a regular basis, it allows you to strategically begin to impact and attract your audience. She can take you in a place in yourself that you can't go by yourself. So go to Kim Jacobs consulting.com. That's Kim Jacobs consulting.com. Did I say Kim Jacobs consulting.com? Yes, you did. Very good. Make sure you go there and sign up for the coaching. And we're looking forward to working with you. You have something special. You have greatness within you. That's my story. And that's Kim's story. And we're sticking to it. Bye for now. Bye-bye. For our audience or those that don't know, Les Brown is the foremost, world's foremost motivational speaker, and he's absolutely incredible. And Kim Jacobs was my coach, is my coach, and so she's a she's a powerhouse to be in connection with. So moving forward, I I definitely want to dive a little deeper. Let's put this on the platform here. And let's take a look at this question. Hi, John. I have been following your writing and art for some time. I was wondering how you managed the emotional transition from the police force to artistic ventures. Greetings from Berlin, Germany. This is from Hannah. Well, hello, Hannah from beautiful Germany. My, my father would love that because he was a huge fan of uh, Germany, being German himself, and Vienna, and a student of the Habsburg Empire and Franz Joseph. Oh, he, he, loved, he loved all that. Um, so the emotional transition from police force to artistic ventures. Well, you know, art was actually always with me, Hannah, through my entire 26 years in law enforcement. Um, in fact, in many ways, it was art and creativity that were the ballast that, you know, that I, that I, leaned on that I that supported me um, during some difficult times in my career. Um, it was a it was like a like a, a good friend that I could always rely on. I always knew after a difficult day or a graveyard shift uh, or if I'd been through some difficult incidents or struggles at work, I could come home and, and certainly my family was another refuge. But but my creative life, I could go into my office, my studio, and it was my own world. And so 
I relied on art and creativity during my career um, to keep me a little bit sane. Um, it was the beautiful place that I could go to where I could paint beautiful paintings or I could write moving stories or I could draw silly cartoons to make myself laugh and others laugh. Um, so creativity and art was a refuge for me. So in many ways, it was the art that kept me emotionally balanced. Um, I think if I didn't have that, um, I think my career would have been more difficult. Um, I was lucky where I worked, we didn't have, um, you know, a lot of really serious crime. We didn't have drive-bys and things like that. Uh, but we had, we had crime like every other city. And so I certainly saw plenty of that. And I've been to plenty of difficult scenes and death scenes and accidents and suicides and, and children that had to be taken away from parents that, that were uh, harming them. So I certainly saw my, my fair share of, um, of ugliness in society. And art for me was that, was that, uh, that refuge, that place I could go to when I came home uh, to escape, um, as well as books and reading. And so when I made a decision that near the end of my um, career, I had about five years to go before I could retire. And I just decided that I wanted to retire early, that I couldn't, I just was, I was ready for a transition. I was ready to live a creative life. And so I gave up a few years of retirement uh, income in order to make that transition and, and become a, a full-time writer and artist. And it was a good decision for me. I think everyone has to make their own decisions about when they're ready for a change in their lives. Um, I was far enough along in my career where I could afford to make that transition. Um, but it was a good one for me to make. It was, it, it was a healthy one to make. Um, I think if I stayed five more years, I would have been stressed. Uh, I could have done it, but I think it would have taken a toll on my health. Uh, and so making that change was a good thing. So I, I don't know where you are in your life, but um, definitely um, if you have a creative practice, whether it's music, art, um, dance, it doesn't matter. Whatever the thing is that feeds your soul, that makes your heart go a Twitter, uh, invest in that. Whether you're, whether you're working and you, you can't afford to make a transition. And some people, their, their passion can't be their profession. There's some things, just there's not enough money in it. I mean, street photography, I love it, but there's not really any money in it. So that alone, it's very hard. There's one or two people maybe to make a living at it. But that doesn't mean you can't pursue that as your escape and as your, as your passion. And that's a great way to balance your life from the struggles of work and raising a family and all the other things we deal with in life. Oh, we had a nice comment here. Don't be sad. It's over. Be happy. It happened. <laughs> that's good advice, Charlie. Yeah, that's yeah. good advice. Yeah. Um, well, John, you have been such an exceptional guest on the Wellness Driven Life Show, and you have written a few books. And so I want to make sure that people have access to that. I, and as we come to closing, um, I have on the bottom here where the audience can reach you. That's www.johnpweiss.com. And um, again, we're, we're curious about the for the photos. Do you sell your photos? And is that through your website? So no, I'm not selling photos currently. I've been using them to illustrate my articles. Um, it is something that I'm thinking about. Um, I've been thinking about bringing back both my fine art paintings uh, and photography and trying to, to pair them. When I was in Carmel stranded that weekend, uh, I talked to a gallerist down there and it got my mind thinking about, boy, it would be interesting to, to maybe add that back into my life is to uh, start uh, painting again 
uh, and pairing some photography, kind of a fun thing to have paintings and photography, uh, you know, in a gallery to sell. Um, so that's something I'm looking into, but uh, wow. I may down the road um, sell photography uh, photographs or, or books of my photography uh, when I get to that point. This is definitely testimony to you that uh, it is desired, sir. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Which is great. John, it's been such a pleasure. Is there anything else that you want to share with our audience today? Well, just um, first again, thank you, April, for having me on your, your program. Um, I would say that your past doesn't equal your future. Um, I've met some people who struggled in life and then reinvented themselves. And I think sometimes people beat themselves up because they feel like they haven't achieved what they want to achieve or they've made mistakes or they've hurt people in their lives. And I just feel like it's important to remind people that your past does not equal your future. If you want to change your life, you can do it. You can do it step by step. And sometimes it's not easy. Sometimes you have to make amends for things you've done in the past that you regret um, but I just really believe in the power of people to reinvent themselves and to change and to have a better future. So that's just my little parting shot there that uh, your past doesn't equal your future. Um, you can always improve your life, both your health, your relationships, your passions. Um, you can make uh, right the wrongs of the past if you've made some mistakes. You can also learn to forgive yourself too if you've made mistakes. I think that's really important. Um, because all of us have to carry our mistakes with us, but uh, that doesn't define us. What defines us is who we are today and tomorrow. So um, your past doesn't, doesn't equal your future. Ah, beautiful words of wisdom. Well worth replay. And <laughs> I, I want to say to our audience, definitely you can find John's information in the description below. If you just so happen to be watching the replay of the show, you can still leave comments and we will do our best to get back with you and answer yeah. that and um, reach John through his website. And what I want to remind everyone is it is because of you that the Wellness Driven Life Show is possible through your generous donations. When you donate through the website at www.thewellnessdrivenlifeshow.com, you will be gifted with this beautiful follow-up email and you can keep that for your records. So again, John, thank you so much. It has been- Thank you awesome having you on the show. You truly have been a light and I love all of the wisdom and the beautiful aspects that you are giving back to the world. And I want to say to everyone, goodbye for now. Thank you so much. And we will see you tomorrow. Give it to me like... <laughs>